A tale as old as time, marketers not getting along and working well with their creative team. It's a two-way street. Sometimes it's the marketing team's fault, and sometimes it's the creative team's fault. It doesn't have to be this way, though, because when these two teams have a solid relationship, look out. On today's episode of DJU, I brought on one of my favorite and most talented people that I've met in my career, Algert Zulo. Algert runs his own branding agency and is a huge part of the success that we've had at Metadata. We'll cover where marketers and creatives go wrong, what they can do to get along well, and a whole lot more. Demand Gen U is officially in session. Let's do it. So Algert, I'm pumped to have you on today. I strategically picked one of two mugs to have on the show today. I didn't pick the one that came from your store. I picked one that I think you might like a little bit more, which is... (laughs) That one beats the one in the store by 100 points. Amazing. This is going to be fun. I think we'll cover a lot of why not just marketers and creatives don't get along well, but more importantly, how they can get along better in the new year. And I think pull from the relationship that we've had at Metadata, some of what you've seen previously at Drift and across the other clients that you all have at your agency. So this should be a good one. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to it. And yeah, thanks for having me. So before we get any further, I know a lot about you, but I think a lot of people also don't know a lot about you. So why don't you introduce yourself first and kind of go through the, not the boring stuff, but the typical stuff of where you started and how you got to this point in running your own creative agency. Yeah. So yeah, I started a long time ago, <laughs> since the times of the software that probably most people don't even know anymore, called Flash, Micromedia Flash, which they do was purchased by Adobe. So I was very passionate about creating these skilled animations. So then I realized that I could monetize those skills and got involved into the website of things. From there, evolved to getting more technical, and then eventually started working as a sort of a full stack designer, if you will, most in the corporate world initially. So I worked for a few of the big companies. Which is so funny them. because knowing you, I can't see you in the corporate world at all. <laughs> yeah, I put, that's what I thought too, but I can't see myself there anymore. <laughs> not, but, but yeah, in those days, you have to start somewhere. So from there, basically, as things evolved, then my Big break, I'd say, was Drift when I make the, met the folks at the Drift. So I was at PayPal and I went for an interview at HubSpot. I don't even think I know this story. So yeah, keep telling this. Yeah, that's yeah, cool. T- taking the, telling you the longer version of the story. So ultimately, it was some sort of consulting gig that I was trying to get at HubSpot. Ultimately, it didn't work out. But the recruiter I spoke to, Keith, you might know him. He was impressed by what he heard. So he then referred me to David Cancel and... Uh, Elias Torres. So that's how I made those guys and they were like in the early days of Drift back then. So they invited me. We literally were working out of builders. I were like five people, basically the two founders, two developers and myself. So I was the employee number five. Um, so Drift was more like where I learned the most things and also where I met the people that I learned the most of, like one of the best teams basically that I work with besides of course metadata you and MGs. I didn't pay you to say that. It would be on the same <laughs> caliber but that's where I met also David Gerhardt and work, got to work directly with him directly with the CEO DC, DC and DG and yeah that was quite an experience. I was skeptical initially because it was a startup and okay cool. The corporate world, the big bucks, going to start up. And then as I saw the process, I saw that company go from five people to 400 plus. Like, wow, I've never had experienced that before. And just seeing that process, I learned a lot. And also a lot of the playbooks on brand side of things. 
techniques that we use even today in the agency are from the times that I had Drift. And probably if you go to drift.com nowadays, you'll still see that algae attached a little bit, that, that, that legacy. That <laughs> it disappeared, it disappeared for a bit. It looks like it's coming back a little yeah, bit. But it seems <laughs> like so I'm excited about excited to see that, that they still stay too, true to those vibrant colors and high contrast type of aesthetic. So yeah, that, that was, and then after Drift basically went back to the consulting world for a very little bit and then started the agency right before COVID hit. So around the area, I was, I was getting more clients asking. So we're like a small shop initially, just like three, four people. And then COVID hit, and that was a game changer for us. Like we got so much demand that we're like, okay, we need to scale now. So that's when we started scaling the team and ourselves more as an agency, like a real agency, not just a small shop anymore. And it coincided also when Jimena, which is my business partner, but also my life partner, she got the, laid off. The boss. The, <laughs> the boss, yeah. And um, basically her job, she was general manager for Latin America for a U.S. corporation. But after COVID, her job was to travel back and forth, build partnerships. After COVID, all the travel stops. So basically, she was one of the first in line. So she got laid off during that time. And I'm like, you know what? Since we're, um, we started the agency, why don't you just bring your skills and build those partnerships? So yeah, that was a little bit challenging initially. So I hired, we joke about it, hired and fired him. And I like in two weeks, like three or four times. <laughs> no, yeah. And then at some point we talked about it. So I'm like, okay, you got to find your way, find your place in the agency. And ultimately, yeah, she did. She was better what she does and literally doubled our revenue after. Yeah, ever since we've just been, and of course we've been lucky, really lucky. I'm grateful to places DG, Exit 5 now, it's under as DGMG. Uh, which we're actually going to talk about next because do you remember how we linked up in the first place? That was what I wanted to. (laughs) So I, I, this is when we had just raised our, our series a at metadata. It was a team of two at the time, Jason and I, and we were basically, you're going to laugh. We joke about this. I was submitting projects on 99 designs. I was trying to find people on Fiverr and it, the output was exactly what you would expect it to be. It was mayhem. It was disorganized. It was all over the place. And I posted in back then it was DGMG. I said, Hey, I I think I actually took a screenshot. I still have it. I said, Hey, this is what I'm looking for. We we have them on the website. We started. (laughs) (laughs) This is what I'm looking for. This many hours a month, startup pricing. We don't really know what I want. And then that was really even before I, I knew Dave. And I was shocked that he commented back. I think he said, sup, Algert. He tagged you. And then I think we had a call like the next day or something. Yeah, absolutely, man. So there was, yeah, there was, and we have it on the metadata case study. We do have that, those screenshots, like how we met metadata. It's literally that conversation from Facebook, from the Facebook group. (laughs) And yeah, I think that that sort of gave a start to a great partnership, which to me is par with with Drift and what we were doing at Drift. That's exciting. We love that. So we're going to talk about a couple of different things that you mentioned later on. But I think before we get to the good stuff, let's talk about just in general, why marketers and creatives typically struggle to work well together. I think this is the working relationship that I've ever had with our creative team, because that's how I look at you guys. Like you are our creative team, but I've also struggled at times in my career working with creatives. So I'll give my take after I hear yours, but why do you think marketers struggle to work with creatives? Yeah. So, I mean, a key of things we notice is, so while this marketing 
and design, they both involve creativity, right? You have to be creative at a certain extent. The processes are different. And we mostly see it on marketers that either haven't worked with designers before and vice versa. We also notice it with designers that haven't worked with marketers or they're siloed or just doing like production work in Figma, but they don't have direct communication with marketers. And it's often the case as well too. Like sometimes marketers are like in their own silo or it's like a marketing associate providing certain requirements, but not getting too detailed. So that disconnect basically in communication, that tends to be the key. And we notice that as soon as we enable the communication between the two, they learn more about their processes. Things get much better. Another thing is clarity. Like even when you then have that visibility into each other's processes, there are certain other parts that also are very important, such as clarity, right? Like making sure that you define what you're looking the designer to do. Something as simple as, okay, I'm looking to create an ad or a landing page for this particular campaign. This is the theme. These are the key headlines. Provide as much context as possible. And after that, typically, it's also being clear, like setting some goals. This is what we're trying to get out of. This is the audience. And uh, yeah, those are typically will help a lot with the two working together and the issues typically that. And I think for me, where I've gone wrong in the past, and it was something that I think I, I learned because I burned myself enough times, is... I never really understood the need for setting guardrails with designers. And I think once you start to use guardrails, hey, this is these are where you need to stay, like within the boundaries. This is the goal. This is what we're trying to get out of it. And then allowing you and your team to just run free within those guardrails. That's where we started to unlock a lot of this. Whereas before... When I was working with in-house creative teams or other creative agencies at, at previous companies, I didn't really set guardrails. So when they came back, it was like, whoa, this isn't what I was expecting. This isn't anything close to what I needed to accomplish. So I think guardrails is really big for marketers working with creatives and really just marketing. in. Yeah. And in general, also in terms of sometimes design, like desires need to be, need to feel included in the process. So personally, at this stage, I'm more on the senior level, but since I was a junior designer and even now to this stage, I absolutely, I don't want to use the word hate, it's a strong word, but I do hate it when people are like, well, yeah, I just need to make this pretty. That's, it feels like really diminishing for a creative because they want to be like a part of the process. They're ready to put all into it and just can, just considering this, yeah, it's just making things pretty. That's a thing to find the ways to motivate designers and making them feel like part of the process. You're going to get the best output for them because then you'll see the true creativity. Also aligns some creative freedom is important if we can. So at Drift, we never had that issue. At MetaData, we never have that issue. But in, uh, I've seen in other companies, marketer get, marketers get a little bit too limiting with the specs that they provide. So we need to be like very specific about this and that because our executive team is boring. Yeah, they're going to say something. If you can, if you have the luxury, I understand. And some companies, things are stricter in order things work better when you give designers a little bit of creative freedom. So I think you touched on or started to touch on a few things, but this is a safe space. You're free to say whatever you want. What are some of the things that marketers do and don't realize that like really frustrates creatives? I'd say basically, I mean, that that part the most. So the pretty part when I said that design is more as just as a tool of making things pretty as opposed to something that's meaningful, like can really help your marketing language. And then, yeah, it all revolves more about things like communication. If you don't have that stuff 
jobs get harder. You don't have enough feedback. Iterations get harder. So those are typically things that are challenging at times. And especially when you start working with either someone new on the team or a new agency. Like we've seen it, like even with metadata, right? Someone is new, like we try to help them and guide them and make sure that they get on board with and working with a designer, collaborating with a designer. It's smooth and without any issues. So there was one answer that I had prepared for you, and I'm surprised you didn't mention it. Three words that I know you and actually hate by committee. <laughs> oh, yeah. How can, we, how can we forget that, right? Design, yeah, design by committee. That's, uh, that's implied. But yeah, absolutely. That one is the big, big no. So yeah, I guess I love that out because we haven't had an issue in the last couple of years as much. But, uh, but I think it's something absolutely. that a lot of marketers struggle with. So for those that don't realize that they do design by committee, help me better understand why that's problematic for you and like the output. It's because it completely derails creativity, basically. You simply cannot operate like that. Designed by comedians, what I've seen in companies, is just a group of people that a number of them have zero design background. Just get together in a room and start voting. And it makes to me absolutely no sense. Like why somebody that we had at the company, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but we had the company from someone from engineering to all the way to the People were doing things like unrelated, like customer service, thought about a particular thing that was healthy, but designed like immediately. No, I don't know. Meanwhile, not disrespect that somebody that does customer service or support, but there are certain areas that when it comes to, to design, it's best that it's a small group of people making those decisions. And you want to have someone from the marketing team and the design team. And in some cases, if the CEO or someone, the executive team, they're passionate about branding, they have something, they have some background. When they're involved, that helps a lot. Like a drift, for instance, the CEO was very involved with the branding side of things. And he's the type of person who has an engineering background, but also loves art and creativity. I was very interested in that and cared deeply about the brand. So he was involved at times as well. And yeah, that helps as well. So... Before we get into the next part in the outline, you said something that triggered a thought in my mind, and it's unplanned, but I think it's a good question. So people talk about brand and branding, and I think oftentimes they talk about the logo and the colors and just really basic stuff. And from my perspective, is not what branding is or what a brand is. So for people who think like that or are trying to figure out how to build a brand, like what does brand mean to you? How does how do you define it? How do you look at branding? To me, and if you ask different people that tell you something different, to me, the brand part is more about the experience, right? So it's your reputation, but that reputation is based on, it's built or the user's minds, directly related, correlated to the experience that users have with your product or company as a whole. That's the brand. Things like colors, logo, et cetera, those are more like symbols and elements that help imprint the image of that brand in our minds, right? So it's a way to facilitate that, make it, make it easy. But yeah, definitely that's not the brand, right? So now that part, to me, the most important part is the experience part, right? How people think about you and the reputation part. So how people think about you. So imprinting that image of your brand in your mind, now it's up to you to build a reputation that are they going to remember you as this kick-ass brand that I really want to do business with or are you just one of those brands that I'm going to stay away with? So yeah, summarize it in one sentence, a few words. It's, it's to me, brand is experience and reputation of your 
I love that. Yeah. And I think back to the early days of Drip, this was well before I was even a customer, probably three, four years before I was a Drip customer in my last. Part of it was what DG was doing from the just the marketing side, but from a branding side and a design perspective, I was just so drawn to it. I was like, I don't even really know what's going on over there, but it looks so cool. I want to experience it. Yeah, a Drip. To me, that was the dream, the dream team because we had DG. So on the visual heard side, of him? Yes. I was really passionate about like the whole vibrant, that is memorable visuals, but a lot of the direction was coming from him in terms of the narrative and everything else. And the thing we, the we had this thing that basically the brand as a whole, the company was like very human focused, like you probably noticed in their collaterals, like these are real people and things like that. Social proof. It was, at least for me, it was unheard of at the time because it was so different than yeah. all the boring stuff that I'd seen mm -hmm. in B2B that it was like, I whoa, I haven't seen anything like this before. Yep. And you'd be surprised, but people keep forgetting about that. And we have about half of our clients or new clients or prospects that we talk to. The whole social proof part is more of an afterthought. So you'd be surprised. You'd think like at this point, at age, we're like, okay. But yeah, those are things, yeah, the drift we're doing. And that, that was part of the drift brand experience. It was very, it became very approachable and really dropped the, the growth. I love it. Now, to get into the next part of what I wanted to cover, it's really the creative process. And I think oftentimes marketers just don't understand the creative process and almost poke fun at the creative process, mostly because they don't really understand it and don't think like that. So I realize that every designer probably has their own creative process, but walk us yep. through without giving away the secret sauce. Like how does your creative process work? Oh, I give you the secret sauce. I don't have any secrets at this point. I'm like, I'm done with the secrets. I just want to share <laughs> So let me put it this way. If you come to me and say, Algot, I want you to make this pretty, there is no process. I'm just going to give you some generic design and ship it <laughs> but the process my personal process of this i'm where i try to most of the people on our team as we're very similar in terms of the way we work is based on rapid iteration so basically we gather we gather the requirements from the clients so like in your case post their card with the requirements we start with like a rough draft or maybe one two or Sometimes the team goes up to, let's say, four or five. I tell them, just typically give the clients one or two quick designs. Just test the water, get a reading. Do you like the direction? Yes or no? And based on the feedback, then iterate from there. So it's typically our process. And then we're not afraid to, if you say, and you've seen it yourself, like if it's something that we don't really feel or you don't feel like good about it and say, yeah, maybe this one, it's, I'm not sure about it. We're not afraid to just completely trash that and start from scratch. So to me, that's a process of, I've been using it for years. Our team uses it now as well. And it works pretty well. Start simple, iterate from there until client goes, yep, that's what I'm looking for. And I think it's different for me because now having seen the light really from like how we work together, I can't imagine ever not working like that. And when I go back to prior experiences that I had, it was, hey, here's a, an initial conversation with the design team. And then they go do their own thing for however long it takes. And then there's this big unveiling at the end. And it's like, there was no back and forth up front. There was no iteration. And it was like, take it or yeah. leave it. Here's the concept. Whereas what we do with you is we'll have, like you said, some initial, like really quick, unpolished concepts with just some initial direction. And usually that direction, like one's over here, one's over here, one's here. 
And we say, yep, I like this. No, I don't like that. Yes, I like a little bit of this. And then it steers you down the path that we want to go down. And I think getting that upfront input from us and then being able to say early on what we like and what we don't like, it helps you and it helps us because then we're way more satisfied with the output at the end. Yeah, and it also gives you the ability to, it's more forgiving as a process because if you wanted to like change the headline completely or change a word, you can do it. We can tweak as we go. It's almost as close as real time as you can get, right? Into creating these things. What are the other process that you mentioned? That's more, yes, you can really be wild by the design or you can end up like with a team that spent like hours or sometimes even days depending on the type of project. And nothing was done, nothing uh, worth looking at or publishing. So yeah, iteration is in general, whether it is branding, design, all the way to product design that we also do, it's iteration is the name of the game. That's the most effective way, fast iteration, rapid iteration. And I think one of the cool things too is that some of the, and let me take a step back. I realize we're in a bit of a lucky spot at Metadata because we're given really the autonomy to just push it and keep pushing it. And when we work with you all on like new things, <laughs> there are like just straight up crazy ass concepts that you guys will put in front of us. And we're like, you know what? Maybe we're not ready for yeah. this. Maybe we're not feeling this right now, but we never trash them. We always put them in Figma for a rainy day. And there have been times where we picked it up, you know, three months yeah. later, six months later, whatever it is. And it's, you know what? Now we've gradually pushed it to this point where we're ready to revisit what was originally thought of as like a crazy concept. Yeah, I always tell, and I've been since my consulting days, like over the years, when I got to reuse like a concept, I said to her, nothing really goes to waste when it comes to the creative stuff. It lives on the back of your mind or you Figma, and then some other project comes along with that. Okay, this part maybe could be appropriate, and let's use it to this particular concept. I love it. Um, so yeah. Now, one of the other things that I think I didn't realize at first when I started working with an in-house creative team at previous companies was copy and how copy and design complement one another. And I think what I've really learned here is it's not, hey, just design something for us and write the copy later. It's have an idea of what the copy is going to say, and then let's make sure the design complements the copy, not fit yep. the copy in at the end of the day. So for people yep. who That's haven't seen that light yet, Help me and help the listeners understand why you think that's so important. So it, it's funny because I see Mark sometimes saying, always start with copy. So I like to troll. Sometimes I have this image from Nike where they have these shoes that are like lungs that look like lungs. I position them as lungs. So that particular ad has zero copies. So when Mark does something, goes, design without copy cannot live. I just always push that image and say, I, what is the word? I rest my case. <laughs> the truth the truth is that yes they're absolutely right there it's in 99 percent of the cases it does start with copy you need the copy and it's a good copy in order to create something that's meaningful right so based on that copy then we it tells us as well like it, it defines gives us a lot of context like what the ad is about and it becomes immediately once you write the copy and say it's for this target audience it becomes immediately clear what do we have to design to to support that copy where in a case when you can tell us, yeah, it's for this audience, we can create something for the audience, but it's really tough to really change the copy after. And yeah, we're really lucky in the case of the because we also have Mark Huber, which is one of the, <laughs> writes, writes the best headlines in the B2B space. I didn't pay him to say that, but I appreciate that. And the, uh, yeah. the feeling is mutual. I want to work with you. <laughs> 
So I want to talk a little bit about what you and I and the both teams have been working on for a while, and we're calling it kind of brand 2.0 for metadata. So if you've been listening to DGU and following metadata over the course of the year, you know that we've really been working on our strategic narrative and our story, and the story is the strategy. And we did something really cool. It was the first time I'd ever done something like this. So truthfully, I had no idea what to expect, and I was super uncomfortable. But we had a custom photo shoot. And what we were trying to do was we were, I'll let you take it from here. We were trying to come up with assets that we could use, whether it be imagery, videos, animations, you name it, that really supported the narrative at the end of the day, because we're tired of seeing the same boring, stale stock images on this. And we wanted to do something different. So let's talk through brand 2.0 and riff on that for a little bit. Yeah, for one, I'm super, always been super excited about brand brand 2.0 since the early conversations that we had and all the way, like as we executed, as we did the photo shoot, the video shoot at the studio in Boston. And finally, now we're getting to, to publish that and to roll that to the public. So yeah, one of the key things there was also the thinking of having some sort of a building a persona for metadata. So we've always used like flow from progressive, although that's a different industry. We always love the idea of having some sort of a person we call referred to as a face of the brand, right? So that's why we chose this character, Alexis, which is like this kind of cool, almost rebellious type of so person. So to interrupt for a second, fun, of the future. fun fact, mm-hmm. I've accidentally called my Alexa, Alexis a couple times because we yeah. say Alexis so much. <laughs> I think I ever yep. told you that. Yeah, it's, we use that a lot. But yeah, so we chose this, basically this person that we from like the way She's dressed. She has more of this rebellious look, like representing the marketer of the future. That's what we're going to project. And yeah, the idea was more like to build the equivalent of either Flow or the Mayhem guy for metadata and create a, get an actress, someone that we could down the road also reuse or have access to so we can feature in any future advertisements as opposed to trying to get one of the, I don't know, one of the bigger celebrities, which could be less accessible in a sense. So build them from scratch. I believe progressive, we've had to talk about this progressive. I don't think Flow, the native was the actress was popular before or the AT&T actress. They were made by this type of commercials as it became, they became almost like the face of brand for those particular company. So that was the idea there. So far, I'm loving the feedback we're getting and we're not even done rolling all of it yet. Yeah, no, I'm excited too. And I think when we talk about the narrative and how, like what we're pushing from a brand design perspective, how it complements the narrative, our whole narrative is really centered around how the old way of running marketing and really campaigns is very manual and repetitive. There are so many low value things that we do on a daily basis that really aren't the reason that we got into marketing, or at least I'll speak for myself, wanted to do when we thought we wanted to be a marketer. So for us, it was really using the script for this photo shoot that we had and the assets that came out of it to show how frustrating, how time-consuming, how overwhelming, how boring really it is to do all of these low-value tasks. And then really just reinforcing how painful it is at the end of the day. So that has been really cool to see. And it's a it's been a gradual process. I think you and I wish it would have liked to have happened a little bit faster, but I think I'm just happy that we're here at this point too. Absolutely. And I do absolutely love the new old way and new way graphics. And you saw you also got to experience the process step by step basically. You flew to Boston, you were in the studio there, you saw I showed everything with Lexus and then how those become the 
that video, that footage became part of the visuals and the compositions that were used on the website to to support the narrative. So yeah, it's been an amazing experience. I love it. Now, I hate to put you on the spot with some predictions, but you have an unbelievable eye for design. And I feel like you are always four or five steps ahead of the curve when it comes to spotting trends. Are there any trends that you're seeing as we get closer to 2023 that people might start seeing in a the B2B world from a design perspective? Typically with predictions, like you should see my investment portfolio. It's minus <laughs> 50% right now. Maybe everybody sees it. Yeah, I was going to say, that's yeah, not unique as, to you. <laughs> yeah. As far as the design goes, so basically AI is picking up a lot. So I've been using a lot of these AI tools. And I believe at the moment it's more of a hype, but at the same time, I do see the potential it has. Uh, Actually, so let's talk about AI. this because this is totally unplanned, yeah. but I follow you on Instagram and I see the stuff that you're posting. But walk people yeah. through what you're seeing right now with AI and design, because I'm fascinated by it just based on what you share and what I see. Yeah, absolutely. So it's true that um, I've been using for the last couple of months. Mostly Dali is one of them, Dali. And then most recently, Chat GPT, which, which I'm pretty impressed because I don't write copyrights. So just helping. It helps set up a, at least the structure of something you want to write and it saves time, right? So the same thing I'm noticing with Dali, right? But the reason I believe right now at this moment it's mostly hype is because people, what you see there on Twitter, it's like these perfect images are either something was generated that was perfect or something that was photoshopped later on. But AI is not quite, I'd say capable, but even when it gets capable enough, what often ends up happening, and the best reference I have right now is Fiverr, which I've used before, and Canva. Both of them were supposed to be like game changers and kill the design industry. I don't have any reference for the, Copy part yet, at least. I don't know. I've messed around with it a little bit this week. It's like very basic. I think it's got a long way to go, but we'll talk about that on another episode. Yeah. So I started, especially with Dali. I mean, I've been using it heavily. And what I realized that these tools are going to become more like assistants and allow us to save time, just like with metadata, right? The way the narrative is basically metadata allows you to minimize or get rid of these mundane tasks. In the design world, there are these mundane tasks right now too, right? Which I have to see them do legwork or things that I don't really want to do sometimes. And these tools of Dali, as they get better and can get more accurate results, I see it's just like really boosting our creative process, like unlocking that next level, which, and there are things that probably we don't even see at the moment. That's what I believe will be like in the future, designing in the future would be. So it's say like videos we create right now, these short form videos or similar videos that now some of them take us forever, right? Uh, maybe in the future, I see like us being able to roll one of those a day as easy as rolling out an ad or a memory page, right? That are relatively simpler. So yeah, AI is the biggest trend as far as the design trends. There are companies, agencies who publish these like design trends for next year. I don't personally believe in those because they go into job shutter is going to come back. Flat design is going to come back. That's really subjective. So any of those styles works well if, ex if executed properly. But yeah, to me, AI is a big thing. I also believe it's because more people are going to be able to do things just like what happened with Canva and Fiverr, it's going to generate so much noise that literally like designers or people out there are like, oh my God, this thing is going to play that job. From my experience with Canva and Fiverr, it generated so much noise that basically it almost doubled the numbers of designers required just because 
that were designers needed just to go and clean up the mess that other designers were doing. <laughs> and I can't see the same. I might be wrong there again. I'm not great with conditions. But we'll I, do another episode next December and we'll see how accurate yeah. you are. Yeah. <laughs> if I had to guess, that, that would be probably the case. I love it. Algert, I think we are running up at time here. I know you and I can talk about all this stuff all day, but I've got another landing page to work on for you. So this was awesome. As yep. always, thank you for everything that you guys do and making us look good at metadata. But this was great. Looking forward to having you on again on Demand Gen U. Absolutely. Yeah, it's most definitely let's check next year, same time. And I'll tell you whether I have a job or like I'm overwhelmed. <laughs> Algorithm's creative yeah. predictions and then his investment portfolio. That'll be the next episode. Yeah. Um, <laughs> again, let's, let's keep creating awesome things. I love it. Mark, thanks so much for having me. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week on DGU. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Demand Gen U. If you want to hear more, make sure to subscribe to get future episodes. You can also submit a specific topic you want us to talk about by DMing us on LinkedIn. If you like the show or want to share feedback, please leave us a review. It'll help us keep improving and get the word out to other marketers just like you. This podcast is brought to you by Metadata, the first demand generation platform that launches paid campaigns that self-optimize to revenue. If you're looking for a tool that makes it easier for you to build audiences, launch paid campaigns, and experiment at scale, you'll love Metadata. B2B marketers at Zoom, Okta, and ThoughtSpot use Metadata to automate the time-consuming parts of running paid campaigns so they can focus on the things that matter.